Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. All right, welcome everybody. We have with us today William Hahn. He is counsel at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty with long experience arguing cases at the highest federal and state levels. He earned his law degree at Catholic University of America. He joins us today to discuss a particular case involving the church and to fill us in on trends in religious liberty and law at the present time. Welcome, Will. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. All right. So, Will, why don't you, you were directly involved with the diocese in D.C., is that correct? Working again. Well, what was the case? Tell us, tell us about it. Sure. So I, well, first of all, I should just say at the outset that um, I, I am counsel at Beckett and I'm speaking though today in my personal capacity and the, my views aren't necessarily those of Beckett's or its clients. In this case though, um, I drafted an amicus brief that Beckett along with Senator Jeff Flake of Arizona and ISCON um, filed on behalf of the Archdiocese of Washington in the DC circuit supporting their efforts to run an ad that uh, invited people during the time of Advent to find the perfect gift. Um, this was to start in 2017. Uh, for years, the Archdiocese of Washington sought to advertise its Find the Perfect Gift campaign, which advertises mass times at Catholic parishes in Washington on the DC Metro. The ad depicts a silhouette of three shepherds and a sheep accompanied simply by the text, find the perfect gift. And while the Metro accepts a wide variety of advertisements for display on its buses, including all kinds of secular advertisements about Christmas and charitable giving, it refused to run the Archdiocese advertisement precisely because it was religious. Uh, the Metro has a policy that explicitly prohibits advertisements that promote or oppose religion or reflect a religious perspective. Um, the Supreme Court has three times rejected comparable efforts to suppress religious speech. Uh, nevertheless, uh, Metro went ahead with this policy and uh, excluded the Archdiocese from running the Find the Perfect Gift ad. Um, that was litigated in the trial court and the federal district court here in Washington, and then again at the DC circuit, and a petition to get the Supreme Court involved was filed. And ultimately, uh, while the petition was denied, it was denied with a statement from Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh, or excuse me, Justice Thomas, 
that sort of teased as to probably why the case was denied, uh, not because it wasn't worthy of the Supreme Court's attention, uh, but as, the, as Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas said, because the full court is unable to hear this case, it makes a poor candidate for our review. And to understand that, you have to know a little background that when this case was before the DC Circuit, uh, then Judge Kavanaugh was on the panel uh, that heard the case and was very active in oral argument, although he did not participate in the opinion. Um, so that, uh, and, and the uh, statement from Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas makes clear at the outset that Justice Kavanaugh took no part in the consideration or decision of the petition. So it seems like the reason why this case wasn't heard by the Supreme Court was because it would be an eight justice court, but that should not suggest that it's somehow a close question. As I previously mentioned, the, the Metro's policy and the decision of the DC circuit to uphold it is in conflict with at least three cases from the Supreme Court that deal with suppressing religious speech. Um, and in addition to that, there was a decision from the third circuit written by uh, Judge Thomas Hardiman, who uh, was also in consideration for the Supreme Court vacancy that ultimately went to Justice Kavanaugh about a policy in Pennsylvania that was very similar to the one in Washington. And the Third Circuit decision, Lackawanna, uh, explicitly disagrees with the DC Circuit's decision to uphold this policy. So um, it does seem pretty clear that there, that there are real constitutional problems with the policy, and it's just then finding the right candidate for the Supreme Court to, to say so. So Kavanaugh would have to recuse. That would leave a 4-4 decision, right? One would hope not. You know, there are three cases, uh, one called Good News Club, one, another called Rosenberger, and one called Lamb's Chapel, that dealt with similar policies where in each case, the government opened a forum of discussion of a particular subject, but then sought to ban discussion of that subject from a religious viewpoint. And every time the court said, that's unacceptable. And what, what Metro was trying to suggest is that because it, um, it banned subjects as opposed to viewpoints, uh, it didn't actually go after religion. But the Supreme Court has been clear that religion is a premise, it's a perspective, it's a standpoint from which a variety of subjects may be discussed and considered. So while it may be possible for the government to limit a forum of potential speech to subjects where religious views are unlikely or rare, the government can't silence religious views on a topic once it allows speech on that topic. Um, and I, I think hopefully, you know, you mentioned 4-4, I would hope that those precedents are clear enough that more than four justices would acknowledge them. You know, if we just take a common sense perspective for a moment, not a legal perspective, to the ordinary man in the street, he would look at this decision by the D.C. Metro saying no church can 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 have anything going up on the walls, even so any harmless kind of advertisement for say, you know, we're running a summer school, whatever. 
the man in the street would say, are you crazy? Well, wait, anyone can do this but a church? This is what, where, how in the world did the DC Metro think that this kind of policy of just forbidding anything pro, and, and, and this thing that they say it's either pro-religious or anti religious i mean how many anti-religious posters do we ever see i mean this, this seemed to me to be a dodge on on their part but where what is the decision making that goes into this this kind of outcome nothing religious can go up on our on our walls all other kinds of look i've, I've been in the i remember in the new york city metro when i lived there for for several years i moved there in 2014 uh, I couldn't believe the things I was seeing. One of the most popular advertisements institutions was the Museum of Sex. And, and the posters that were up, I mean, I had my son there, my, my 11, 12-year-old son. I just wanted to shade his eyes every time we went on the subway. That's okay. But a statement by uh, a church saying, you know, advertising something that it offers. Nope. You're out. This is crazy. Yeah, it is astonishing. I mean, a number of great examples were given by the archdiocese in its in its arguments. Uh, you know, one example that's is memorable is if Macy's wanted to run an ad that said "Find the perfect gift" and advertise the times that it would be open during the Christmas shopping season, there'd be no problem with that. But if the archdiocese wanted to run an ad that said "Find the perfect gift." to advertise mass times, that's a problem. Um, we talked a bit about in our amicus brief about how you are making a value judgment when you allow for discussions on what Metro called the secular half of Christmas, but not the religious half. Uh, anyone who's seen a Charlie Brown Christmas knows that uh, you can't, that there is a commercial understanding of Christmas and then there's a, you know, a, a different one rooted in the religious meaning of Christmas. And to uh, acknowledge one at the exclusion of another is to make a value judgment. I sort of think of Charlie Brown standing there screaming, isn't there anyone who can tell me what Christmas is all about? Um, you really are making a value judgment. And I think, you know, you asked about the decision-making process. Metro cited examples of ads that were particularly critical of certain religions or even offensive with that. I think most people regard as offensive with respect to particular religions and their view is, well, even if we allow these innocuous ads, like find the perfect gift, we're going to have to allow to avoid a viewpoint problem. The, uh, the, the really offensive ads that make reference to religion. I mean, first of all, you know, there's the sort of legal response to that, which is like, as, as Justice Gorsuch and Thomas point out, you could have an acceptable range of subjects uh, where maybe there might not be offensive or, or there's unlikely to be a you know, speech that people would regard as offensive. But once you open the forum, you have to have a, a neutral viewpoint approach toward the, the views you're going to have in the forum. But I would say that even more fundamentally, the upshot of Metro's argument is to suggest that somehow discrimination against religion as such is okay. It's only discrimination against particular kinds of religious perspectives or views that are a problem. And that to me was one of the most troubling parts about this case is that 
there were already a number of guidelines that Metro had out. I mean, you can you know that because the prohibition on religion was guideline 12. There were 11 other ones before it, and there are some after it, um, that ban all kinds of issue ad type speaking. And to categorically exclude religion is to suggest that somehow religion doesn't belong, that somehow there's, there's just something about religion that's inherently divisive or inappropriate to be a part of the public square. And, you know, it was interesting, a lot of the case focused primarily on the free speech problems, and there clearly are viewpoint discrimination problems with Metro's rules and rules like it. But, you know, that's only one piece of it. There is also serious free exercise problems because the free exercise clause protects, among other things, the manifestation of religious conscience from government interference, regardless of where it occurs. So much of the debate about Metro's policy focused on, well, this is a transit system. We're trying to make a buck um, by having commercial advertisement. But the free exercise of religion doesn't begin by asking, well, where is the religious exercise occurring? It asks by whether or not there is a sincere religious belief, a sincere form of religious duty that is being manifested and the need to be protected. Um, and, uh, and the arguments that were set forth by Metro would simply permit all kinds of content-based restrictions on religion be because of simply where it manifests and have nothing to do with whether an individual or institution's religious duties compel it to manifest its religion. And that, and that, that just ignores a very serious part of the First Amendment. Do you think that in the DC leadership, there are people who are secularists who simply feel a hostility toward religion, or is there also, or maybe instead, that they feel they've been put into a legal corner by aggressive atheist groups who will sue any public entity at the drop of a hat if they see any presence of religion, say, in advertising space? Well, I mean, Metro's own stated justifications for this policy was precisely a concern that there would be protests, boycotts, or uh, other kinds of complaints about, you know, quote unquote, divisive religious ads. Divisive? Wait, wait, Will, this is a divisive religious ad? Did they actually use the language of divisiveness? They admitted in oral argument that this particular ad was benign, but their, but their concern was that there would be other kinds of ads. There was an ad, for example, about how the prophet Muhammad was depicted. And there was another ad they mentioned that was critical of the Catholic bishops. And they were concerned about right or reaction to those things. But again, the, the, you know, as I was sort of suggesting, the First Amendment does provide the government tools but it, 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 to, to avoid or to at least try to minimize those kinds of conflicts. But to your point, part of once you open a forum, once you allow for free discussion on viewpoints, um, it's odious to say that all religious viewpoints can be excluded when you are allowing discussions of, say, Christmas, for example, or discussions of charitable giving, for example. Uh, you really are privileging and making a value judgment about this kind of discussion of charitable giving is okay. Now, there was an interesting exchange in this oral argument in the DC circuit where um, 
Metro suggested that it would be fine if Catholic Charities, for example, wanted to just have an advertisement to promote charitable giving. And it's because why? Well, Metro makes a judgment that that has nothing to do with religion. Charitable giving is just a good thing. And, and as, if, as if Catholic Charities is involved in charitable giving for no religious reasons at all. Um, that it really is, it gets to this idea that religion somehow doesn't belong in the public square and that somehow uh, the government can make value-based distinctions, but then pretend that it's not, pretend that this is all a neutral standard. Um, it's, a, it's an issue that comes up again and again where the government is purporting neutrality, but in fact is making a value judgment in secularism. Now, you, you implied that if a situation like this one makes it to the Supreme Court and none of the justices have to recuse that these kinds of restrictions will go down. I'm hopeful that they would. I don't see how a way consistent with the court's decisions, the ones I mentioned specifically, but also free exercise decisions that deal with when a law is neutral and generally applicable toward religion or how religion participates in um, getting access to government programs. I don't see how these these kinds of restraints could survive constitutional scrutiny. When did this legal removal of religion from the public square really take off? Was it in the 60s? Was it in school prayer decisions? Were there particular historical episodes that you might cite in, or or that the, the DC Metro might cite as precedents that are getting awfully old at this point? Well, um, there's a lot in there. I, I, you know, I think as a, as a general matter, there has always been a tension in our society about how religious exercise should manifest. But I think in more recent decades, I'd say maybe specifically over the past 50 to 60 years, there's been more fundamental debates about whether or not religious exercise should even be manifested at all. Um, and I think that that marks a shift. And I think you see that in how the Supreme Court has um, interpreted both the free exercise clause and the establishment clause. Um, and, you know, I think a key theme, kind of taking a bigger picture here, would be that, uh, you know, for much of American history, including more recent history, religious liberty had sort of bipartisan appeal. That This idea that you should accommodate religion, you should allow for religion in public life because it provides an important restraint on the zeitgeist. It demonstrates and points to the source of our rights and orients the society toward um, transcendent visions of the good that can help shape the public square and public discourse. Um, But now uh, I think maybe starting in in the mid 20th century, if not maybe a little bit, I think before then, although there were always, there were religious liberty flare-ups even in the 19th century, I think religious exercise that in any way deviates from secular conceptions of the good life or tolerance are viewed much more skeptically than they were before. And I think you can see that in in how Metro responded here, this this notion that somehow discussing religion is itself divisive, um, that you can make a distinction on religion because somehow religion is always divisive. Um, and And I think in response to that, some defenses of religious exercise have kind of downplayed the importance of religious religion itself, but as 
but have made arguments for religious liberty solely in terms of, of self-expression and not, not thinking about the broader public good that having religion as part of the conversation serves. Um, and I think all of those developments are creating or are underlying a lot of the conflicts that we're seeing about the role of religion in American life in all kinds of areas, whether it's advertisements, social services, public benefit programs, campus school ministries. Um, you could really go down the list. I think, I think there's an undercurrent of this conflict, uh, this more recent conflict in, in all those kinds of things. You know, the, the idea on the secular side is that religion itself is a is an aggressive force but the historical irony here is that religious people look at this in the last 50 years and they see that the balance of aggression in the battle of secular versus religious falls squarely on the side of of the secularists are they is this just a strategy on on the, the secular act advocates part? Or do they really believe that religion is a malign force out to suppress people? Well, you know, I, 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 I'm, not cer- I, I'm not certain I would speak necessarily to the motivations of people. I do think there is a stream in, um, certainly in a lot of uh, thought in, sort of self-governing society that does, it, it views religion in tension with the role of the state in the sense that the state is on some level going to be involved in shaping morality, shaping opinions, shape, fulfilling important functions that bear on how you define the good life. And uh, religion has something to say about those things and it always has. And so um, there's going to be attention there. And I think some, uh, some theories of, of liberalism, for example, put a lot of, uh, put a lot of restraints on religion because they, they view that tension as something that should always be resolved in favor of the government. But I think um, the American experience has a broad, rich history of recognizing what religion brings to a free society and, and the notion of individual rights and the notion of limits on power and how we can sort of restrain ourselves to achieve objective goods. Um, you know, some people think, for example, that the notion of individual rights kind of was itself just a rebellion against religion. But, you know, there's been a lot of intellectual history work that's been done that has demonstrated that the notions of morality that led to the dignity of the individual human being uh, made in the image of God, regardless of sex, class, or race, or anything like that, uh, came in part from religious premises, and that the ingredients for free societies founded on equal rights that limit the power of government were all a part of the Western tradition well before the arrival of sort of secular modernity. So the story is, and I think our our history as a country kind of demonstrates the harmony that can that can happen. But you really have to need to want to live and let live. And to your point about the aggression, you know, live and let live doesn't work when there's an aggressor. And I think hopefully one of the things that uh, the Supreme Court can make clear 
and that our, the cultural debates on religious liberty can make clear is that uh, having a live and let live society requires recognizing more senses of restraint on ourselves rather than just constantly aggressing against another to stomp someone out of public life. When, if we all approached each other with a little bit more humility, um, we might all help one another find the true good. That'd be nice. That'd be nice. That, that sounds good to me. Well, now, uh, people would look at this denial of ad space to this benign uh, advertisement as just absurd. What are some of these similarly egregious cases of suppression of religion that you have encountered in your work at, at Beckett in the last, I think you came a couple of years ago, you joined Beckett. What, what, are, are there any particular episodes that have stood out to you? Let me count the ways. <laughs> I just, um, you know, so for example, the, the, the Supreme Court's going to be hearing one of our cases uh, in its upcoming term called Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, where Catholic Social Services, which is uh, part of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, that its foster and adoption ministry has been serving uh, the, the most vulnerable parts of the city of Philadelphia for over a century with an excellent track record of placing children with families who might not otherwise be able to find um, a loving family, uh, particularly good at certain kinds of placements that no other foster and adoption agency uh, succeed at, and nevertheless have now uh, been excluded or threatened to be excluded from continuing that century-long religious ministry because it occurred to the city of Philadelphia through a newspaper article that Catholic social services uh, adheres to Catholic beliefs about marriage and family. And it, uh, again, sort of pointing to the, just the hypothetical nature of the problem, no same-sex couple or unmarried couple had ever come to Catholic Social Services asking, hey, can you come and certify our home to place a child uh, with us? Uh, that's never actually happened. And even if it would have happened, Catholic Social Services noted, notes that there's 28 other agencies in the city to which they would, the couple would be referred to to fulfill the home study piece and, and place the child with that couple. So... Uh, there's an example to me where the city of Philadelphia has acknowledged that there's a foster care crisis, that there needs to be as many beds as possible and all hands on deck to serve children and families. And yet you're going to exclude one of the longest running, most successful providers over an ideological dispute that harms children and, and vulnerable families. You know, Will, I, I remember when that case uh, came up and seeing the city go after the, the the Catholic agency. I didn't know that the city was prompted by a newspaper article and that there weren't any complainants, people who were rejected. That's remarkable. It It, it is. It is. Um, and then, you know, there are other cases we represent um, St. Vincent Catholic Charities in Michigan. And, uh, you know, similarly there, um, the, there, and we've documented this in our court filings, that the ACLU was recruiting couples to go, and, to, go to religious foster and adoption agencies simply to get turned down, um, just to gin up a lawsuit. Um, 
And it, it seems like whatever live and let live means, that can't be it. It's not live and let live. We 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 know the real thing. <laughs> you go, alluring. You you go with the flow, or you're out, pal. That that's the uh, that's the tactic. Let me ask um, as as we wrap up. Have Trump appointed judges proven better on issues of religious liberty? Well, I think we've seen some great victories in recent in recent years, um, and I think some of the uh, appointees from the president um, have demonstrated a very thoughtful record on religious liberty. I mean, to use the WMATA case as an example, although Justice Kavanaugh did not participate in the opinion, he was very active and very engaged at oral argument and made what I thought were some excellent points uh, in response to the arguments from Metro. Uh, so he, he clearly had, I thought, a pretty deep understanding of of the religious liberty issues at stake. Um, and I, you know, Justice Gorsuch similarly developed an excellent record of religious liberty when he was on the 10th circuit and, and has, I think, continued in that vein uh, on the Supreme Court. So, and I think that, that that is generally true of, of appointees at the lower court level. Um, I do think, you know, in, to say, I mean, there are other justices appointed by Democrats, Democratic presidents are nominated by Democratic presidents and, and that have that have good records on religious liberty too. I think uh, Justice Kagan, for example, has demonstrated a particular sensitivity to religious liberty claims. Right. You, you liked her, you liked her in the in the Phillips, the Jack Phillips case, her position? Well, um, I think, you know, in that in that case, I don't think uh, as much attention could have been paid to the the level of disparate treatment among Phillips's case against other cases. But I do think that uh, her concurring opinion with Justice Alito and Hosanna Tabor, for example, just demonstrated that an appreciation for the richness of religious pluralism in our country and also the importance that religion provides as a, a critical buffer against state power. Um, and, I, and, and assertions of state power. And I think that's an important insight. Uh, last question, Will. Do you at Beckett feel momentum? Do, do you see even w with, with the record of judicial appointments in, in the last three years, uh, are, you, are you feeling optimistic? Well, um, I, speaking for myself, I, I will say that I am hopeful. And I am I'm hopeful not only because uh, I have to be, <laughs> uh, but, but uh, as 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 a Christian, um, but also because I, I I genuinely think that the the desire for wanting a good society, which I think is something that rings out in a lot of the debates that people are having about the kind of um, the kind of society America's become and where it's going everyone seems to want a good society. And if we are arguing on the terms of goodness, I think it'd be very hard to exclude a notion of transcendent moral goodness from that conversation and uh, to see a unique contribution from religion in that, con in that conversation. I think people are, they look out at, uh, at our world, they look out at the university and they, 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 they see questions and they're, and in doing so, they're acknowledging that what we at, what we at Beckett always say, which is that human beings have their eyes fixed to the far horizons with a thirst for the transcendent. And when that's the case, that's an opening 
I think, for the value of religion to be made clear and made plain. And I think you're seeing that in, in so many of the good works that religion is doing in response to our current public health crisis. But also, I think you see it just in how religion can point us past the disputes of the day to what is it, to what is something that we should hold on to for tomorrow, even if we don't see the value of it today. It's it's an it's an important part of living in a self-governing society because it allows one to truly govern oneself. And I think people appreciate that. And I think more people will see a reason to appreciate it as they focus on goodness in public life. Will Hahn, thank you for joining us, sir. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.